0: And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod.
1: I first met Shayla Murray when she was assigned to cover the Obama campaign in 2008 uh, for the Washington Post uh, and was with us uh, throughout much of that incredible journey and filed some of the most insightful pieces uh, on the race. Not always ones I liked but always ones I respected. Two years later, uh, she joined the administration as a communications director for Vice President Biden and ultimately became a senior advisor to President Obama and really helped revolutionize how White Houses communicate in the modern age. She was recently a, a fellow at the Institute of Politics, and I got to sit down with my old friend and talk about Her journey, the presidency, and modern communication. Shayla Murray, my friend, welcome here and welcome to the Institute of Politics, where you're wowing young people, uh, and we appreciate that. So, I've known you a long time, and I've been meaning to ask you this: I I know you you were a a really great journalist. Reach the highest levels of government, but like looking at your background shouldn't you have been sort of like a missionary, a Catholic missionary somewhere in the third world, or something more uh, connected to that?
0: Well, yes, um, tell me about your in, folks in many respects, um, that was the prescribed path, and um, well my parents are are kind of the um, kind of archetypes of the progressive '60s Catholics, who um, came from Republican families and uh, were sort of seized by the the transformation in the church in the '60s, which coincided with you know the
1: Pope John the twenty three.
0: exactly, and the and and the transformation in the country, and so those all those streams ran together. And they, my father was a um, was in the Franciscan Seminary for four years. And met my mom on a blind date day or two after he left.
1: Hence, no priesthood, huh? You no,
0: know, I think he was having some uh, daydreaming about the cleaning lady, and the Monsignor said, "You know, son, <laughs> I think it's a sign." <laughs> 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 and then he went out and married the first woman he met when you leave the seminary, which is the which is the joke. So they, uh, you know, they were very and are very idealistic. People very much driven by their faith and have lived their faith. My mother is a nurse; was a public health nurse for years. Um, would put us in the back of the car and drive us all over the Appalachian um, mountains, visiting people who had never seen healthcare workers before in Virginia. And and my dad worked for the church most of his life. So and doing what he worked. Um, uh, Initially in education and parish work, he started off in parish work and uh, um, kind of running a parish in Charlottesville, Virginia, and that had been recently integrated in the late '60s. And under a very progressive uh, bishop in Richmond, and we—that uh, was a really powerful experience, sort of living through that era firsthand, and you know, in your own community. Um, and then he became the the head of uh Catholic school system for the Diocese of Virginia, which covered the entire state except for Northern Virginia. So he was um, working on this he, integration The entire rest of the state
1: doesn't actually think of Northern Virginia as, as part of the state anyway. So. Yes,
0: exactly. We used to say a prayer for the people who lived in Northern Virginia because it was <laughs> so sad. Um, but they uh, – uh, so – they were very much on the front lines of of the civil rights movement through the Catholic Church, um, and and over the years, uh, my dad worked in different capacities in the church and um, with uh, eventually worked with a, a particular order that had a lot of assets and that he helped them manage. Um, and it was just a I, I got a very uh, Idealized and and um, sort of high end version of of a Catholic childhood. Uh, it was peripatetic. You know, we moved a lot, and I was always the new kid in school. And but yet we we that they were driven to. Um, well, I was. It was so inspiring to have parents who were so committed to. Um, Not just it wasn't cause they were just really driven by their um, view that if you just did your own if you did something meaningful that that other people would benefit from it and and so that was instilled in us more than a sense of mission to be um, part of the church or you know an extension of the church as as they were in a lot of respects but you know all five of us kids kind of came out of that culture and have lived it in some form in our in our professional lives you
1: mentioned something interesting before we uh, start recording which is that there were a lot of sort of familiar political players swirling around that uh or have been touched by because kane came later w- w- was he there when you were there uh tim kane in richmond but uh, Doug Wilder was around there, and of course Steve Bannon comes from yeah, there. Actually, D- different we, part of the Catholic Church,
0: different part of the Catholic Church, but we the, essentially the same neighborhood. I mean, Tim Kaine lived about four blocks from me in one direction, and Steve Bannon lived probably within ten blocks in another direction. And it was a really interesting. You know, we moved we moved around a lot, but we lived in these places and just like really important places in just the right time. So. The '70s in Virginia was like um, it was like the 19th century was just coming to a close in many respects. The you know integration was was still uh, a work in progress, and we um, you know it was very segregated. Uh, the city and uh, city of Richmond in particular, the capital of the Confederacy, but also um, people just thought that way. It's just the way they, they saw the world. And we, uh, that was brought home, um, when we sold our house, uh, in Richmond to a black couple. And, um, I guess this was the early eighties and, you know, overnight the fence went up next door and my mom couldn't get the dry cleaning back. And, um, We just kind of hightailed it out of town, and it was it was amazing to me. In two thousand eight, I went back to that neighborhood um, right before the election, and the you know the Obama signs were everywhere, and that was just the kind of community that had um, had transformed just in you know a fairly short amount of time. Now Bannon comes out, but exact uh, same scene.
1: Yeah, but led him to different places, obviously.
0: Right. And I'm not a, you know, I was not a Virginian by birth. Uh, uh, I was born in upstate New York, another um, pivotal place at a pivotal time, um, height of the industrial age, (laughs) the Rust Belt. Um, But um, so the, you know, we, I guess I have more of a voyeuristic appreciation of the South than a Native identity. Um, But you can see how um well it's an interesting it, that neighborhood is really interesting because it's not it's i've i've seen it described as in as working class in in stories about him but it's not really it's a kind of an urban suburb um in many respects an older like late 19th century um many big beautiful houses boulevards with um with Big medians and leafy trees and parks and whatnot. So it has a, it's, it's, you know, kind of old school middle class community that, but that had saw so much of that, uh, those growing pains from the 70s and 80s in particular. You know, those were the pivotal 20 years for communities like that.
1: Yeah, but he came out of it with a very uh, different outlook than you did.
0: Right. Right, he did. Um, although, uh, but
1: both informed in some ways by faith, I guess.
0: By faith, and it's interesting because in in uh, when you live in a place like that and you're a Catholic, there's a you automatically have a, a kind of an outsider's perspective. Actually, I went to the same church as Tim Kaine did, which was an integrated Catholic church in the city. Um, I actually attended the school there when it was still open. And um, so I saw like the post-change rich mm-hmm. side of Richmond mm-hmm. entirely. I mean, we lived in that. It was very important. My parents, we, you know, we had, there was a Jewish community that we uh, uh, had friends um, with and and uh, that's when we started having seders at home. I mean, my parents were very committed to uh, multiculturalism before it even had any um, name attached to it. So so I, I all that's to say that they're, you could you can easily see your neighbor and my neighbor, my next door neighbor, uh, is the one who put the fence up when mm-hmm. when we sold the, fam- the house to the to the African American couple. So you can live right next door to that and not you know have totally different experiences.
1: And um, and probably those things aren't exposed until
0: no, not at all. In fact, they were a nice older couple, and I would go over and visit with them as a kid. And and um, and no, it was a completely friendly situation until until it wasn't um you went off to university of missouri when did you so you,
1: how, what attracted you to journalism and was it there that you uh did you go there for that purpose they've got a great journalism program. i did
0: I, I went there for that purpose um i got i got some advice a year or two in from an f- old friend of my dad's who worked at the wall street journal it was like you know kid you can't be a journalist unless you know stuff. So don't major in journalism. That's a huge mistake. That's a big,
1: <laughs> yeah. that's a really valuable piece of advice. It
0: was, but it was also, you know.
1: But you ignored it.
0: <laughs> no, no, I didn't. I dropped out of the, well, I wasn't in the program yet. I, I pivoted. I ended up in this um, interdisciplinary humanities program, which was great. It was exactly what college should be. But I, you know, uh Parallel Lies with Tim Kaine, same school, both graduated in three years. So I was very young coming out of college and um, kind of directionless. Were you doing writing there? Were you doing writing? No, I was working in a nightclub and at a record store and just. Something to be said for those things. Yeah. (laughs) Something to be said for those
1: things. Uh, You know, I just want to pause on that point though, because I really fundamentally believe this mainly because. I went to a university, this university Mm -hmm. of Chicago that didn't have a journalism program. But I think the great journalists are people who are generalists, who have broad intellectual curiosity, who know stuff about a lot of different things and who are curious. Um, And it seems to me like reporting now you went on to graduate school is something that you learn by doing. Uh, And it's very hard to learn in a classroom. But I never was the beneficiary of Journalism school, so you know I mean I learned mine from crusty old uh, reporters uh, you know here in Chicago
0: right that was my that was my preferred choice um, but I ended up going to uh, I expedited it by going to Northwestern uh, graduate school which in a year gives you a lot of practical experience and it helps you sort of get that really good first job. Um, and what was that really good first job? Skip the un, unpaid internship process, uh phase. Uh I, I um at Tampa Tribune covering cops and courts and you know outraged yeah, people stuff at, you, yeah. <laughs> at town hall meetings, you yeah, know. The grounding. Um, grounding all familiar ter- report, yeah. yeah, the best, you know, the best years of our lives were always those first few years in journalism where you're doing everything for the first time. And, yeah. And um but it was but you know, as you I think it's just a you know it when you see it career choice where it, you know it does attract generalists. For me it, it it did appeal to this kind of voyeuristic streak that I had developed over the years of being like transplanted into you know totally foreign cultures like you know the old south or mm-hmm. or we lived for a while in uh, in a small town in northern indiana similar deal you know went from a small Catholic school to a big public school and and uh, so you learn these you you you're either good at that kind of, you're either really adaptable is it or you're like not.
1: is it a um, is it a survival thing or I mean I'm...
0: I think you just realize at a certain point that you learn a lot from that perspective mm-hmm. and that being like the objective outsider or the outsider with no skin in the game or the is actually an asset if you deploy it effectively. And to me, journalism was a way of being the new kid in the room, not really having to interact, but being able to absorb a lot um, and experience.
1: That's like, why, to me, it with, seems, I totally get that. It seems like a survival technique as well.
0: Maybe. It yeah. is. You know, I'm, I'm Irish, so I don't really have an inner life, but I suppose if... <laughs> I, maybe it is and but it seems so completely well, I'm, I'm natural. I'm Jewish so let me assign one to. Exactly, you. right. Yeah. <laughs> um
1: so um uh, you 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 met at Northwestern your husband Neil King yep. a very very fine journalist who uh recently uh retired from the Wall Street Journal um and you guys took off for Europe. Yeah. What what was what was the thinking there? I, you neither of you had jobs over there, correct? Right.
0: We, <laughs> the uh, so we we had um, uh, met at Northwestern, had gotten jobs together in Tampa, had had the you know time of our lives covering, you know serial killers and like crime sprees and nudist colonies, you know all the great Florida stories. I, I
1: completely, <laughs> I completely hear you. There may be people out there who don't necessarily <laughs> get the exhilaration of yeah. covering. These kinds of things, but it is knocking
0: on the doors in the trailer park, right? Yeah, Have you seen yeah. this guy? Um, we uh, so we were, you know, had nothing to lose, and and um, and it, well, we felt like we had nothing to lose, and we quit those jobs and just moved to Prague, and it was right in the early days of the post-communist Eastern Europe craze. Uh, there were a lot of us doing exactly the same uh-huh. thing as it turned out. But what, what was, caused you
1: to go go there was so
0: it? a friend of a friend of ours had been over there on assignment, and I think it even called us while he was there. Works for, he uh, works for National Geographic, and um, was just full of you know, oh my gosh, you wouldn't believe this place. It's so amazing. There's it is a spectacular it's a spectacular city, place. Yeah. It it had exactly the right combination of kind of romantic. Uh, uh, exotic foreign destination appeal and also a lot of uh, work you know a lot of work to be had for for aspiring journalists slash freelancers who would do anything and um, and we did and then we you know and then was Havel the in in, in the ke- president the president at the time. Uh, yeah and I think Václav Klaus was the prime minister well no this is we got there before the country split Oh, so we were there. And that was (laughs) that was the classic, like, American perspective, why would a medium sized country in Europe choose to become two small countries in Europe? Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's, um, so it was, yeah, huge learning curve where you're in the minute, you know, in the moment of this just huge historical event. And it was really exciting. And we caught a huge lucky break. By hooking up with the Wall Street Journal, pretty soon after a few months after we after we moved there, and um, we're hired. Well, well, by— There was so
1: much going on. Did they were they just yeah? They were expanding,
0: for, needed needed bodies, yeah. and um, we had had you know because we'd had a few years of real journalism experience. We had that advantage of mm-hmm. like knew how to file a story. Because yeah, a lot of people there were trying to launch their careers, and we just had a, we were a little further down the road, so that helped a lot. And, and what um, kind of
1: stories were you writing about the transition from uh, about you know the a Soviet lot era. of it
0: was the um, like I, I remember doing one. I did a couple of stories uh, that one about the Czechs had the highest um, per capita rate of atheism in um, in the world, I think, and. I went around with a couple of Mormon missionaries uh, who had recently been dispatched, and um, as they tried to uh, cross the threshold with these hardcore atheist old ladies um, all over uh, Prague. And so you would find, you would try to find little ways to tell big stories. So uh, I did another, I remember doing another story about the rampant. Cheating that went on in universities, everyone just cheated their way through school because you know so cynical everyone was so cynical about authority that um there was no there was no um, moral downside to something like that, so the universities is trying to change that culture and and um uh, you know talking to teachers who knew everybody in the class was cheating and was- try- actually trying to teach students how to learn the right way the things like that were You know, they were just moments that uh, huge growth moments. What about the the, having um,
1: lived under the boot of uh, this, you know, oppression? Essentially, what what was the how exhilarating was it to be there when people were experiencing these newfound? Freedoms.
0: Well, it was really exhilarating, and you—you you know, there were there were camps. Obviously, there were certain people who had been like listening to John Coltrane their whole lives, locked up in their little apartments. They knew everything about um, American culture. You know, they were obsessed with certain writers. They were obsessed with music. They were, um, and um, and they were the ones who felt truly free, and uh, because they were. Because it was their passions that had been unleashed. A lot of people, though, felt you know kind of perversely safe in that kind of structure. And it 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 teaches you living in a in a place like that, a moment like like that, teaches you how you know long the arc arc of history can be, and how hard changes even when it's even when people really want it or they think they really want it. And and you know the inevitable. Uh, Sort of interlude that that follows that kind of trauma, which is corruption and the wrong people take, you know, assuming power and this uh, people lose, and people lose becoming more cynical about about the system, feel even more disconnected. So, you know, it was a you were just really inside of people, you know, you were inside of an emotional um, drama that the entire, an entire people were experiencing collectively, but in very different ways. And young people obviously handling it a lot better than older people, but it creating these tremendous generational divides that, you know, they, you would see manifest themselves within families that you knew. And, and, um, you know, if you were over the age of 35 or 40, um, you know, your life, the story of your life was basically written. It was very, very hard to adjust. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: so so there's kind of a bifurcation between the old and the young. And the young were enthusiastic. The old were, they were uh, anxious.
0: Anxious, right. And, and you know, this was a country that had been, you know, between uh, around World War I was, I think, the fourth largest industrialized country in the mm-hmm. world. I mean, it had a, it was a... You know, and, and everyone was waiting for those factories to reopen. That that you know, the, they would start making airplanes again, and they would start making helicopters again. And it it just that never that day never came. And you knew, it, I mean, I knew it never would. But it was uh, so it was an interesting. It was interesting to see up close, but it also it it, it was it taught me a lot about that the way the way people adapt that I wasn't expecting. Yeah, and
1: the difficulties of these transitions. Right. We'll be right back with Shayla Murray. So I know you uh, spent some time in Brussels as well, Um, and so you must have some uh, familiarity with what happened at NATO. And uh, the, the reason I ask this question is we're in this weird time now where the president sort of casts some doubt on that alliance on the european Union uh, and uh, and uh, you have Putin who 's trying to reassert himself on the world stage, who uh, remembers that era when you were in Europe as the darkest period in russia 's history that uh, mm-hmm. because of all the indignities that were heaped on them including including in This larger European community, nations that were once in the Soviet uh, sphere, What, what was that like, that whole environment back then?
0: Well, so we left Prague and moved to Brussels right as the EU was expanding and establishing a common currency and really becoming the you know, full-bodied mm-hmm. entity that it is today. And the, you know, these institutions don't really make a lot of sense when you look at them up close. They're huge and bureaucratic and ineffective day-to-day. And uh, it wasn't surprising to me that that Brexit happened when you, when you think of the kind of collective ex- uh, exhaustion with um, the bureaucracy that comes from Brussels. But it's also impossible to imagine um a world without those institutions and i think that is what uh is hard for you know maybe in uh, we we have so much distance now from from the cold war and and we this kind of interregnum period that we're in or hope you know maybe not an interregnum maybe just the future is is a uh, the, a lot of these institutions are, re, are are reactions to to the world we lived in for a long time and maybe haven't adapted as successfully.
1: Well, there've been these huge economic changes. There were great. Pro- there was promise of great economic right. uh, progress by joining together in the uh, European Union. European Union, and I'm sure advocates of it would make the case that there have been great advantages to it, but. Just as in our country, people are feeling all these dramatic changes right. that have marginalized a lot of uh, working-class uh, people, and the institutions become very suspect in that kind of a...
0: Right, and they don't see any direct benefit in their own, you know, inside their house, and their right. own personal lives. So they see people who were disadvantaged before gaining advantage, and their own opportunity... Uh, uh, or um, sense of progress diminishing. And that's, that was, that started to develop almost right away. And especially with um, when Eastern Europeans started to move to Western Europe and uh, take up a lot of those um, menial or, you know, blue collar type jobs, they were willing to do them for less. They were willing to do them off the books. It, it It was really disruptive almost right away. And, it's you know, now we're 20 years down the road, and, and that that pool has expanded vastly, you know, to include parts of uh, you know Southern Europe, Southeastern Europe that really a lot of Western Europeans don't even consider their their brethren. I mean, these are very uh, um, you know homogeneous countries mm-hmm. by by tradition. so you, you talked about being inside this great emotional. Trauma. Then
1: you came back to Washington in 1999, and uh, you kind of dropped into the post-impeachment Washington and started covering Congress uh, for the journal. Mm -hmm. Uh, What was what was the emotional state of Washington when you arrived there? Was the was the was the was the uh, post-impeachment period was was that done or did it still cast a shadow over? uh what what exactly was the state of play in uh, Congress when you started covering it in the late very late 90s
0: Right I I missed the entire Clinton administration I think we lived overseas for almost to the month for the entirety of Oh it. I
1: see so so Bush was your
0: We we came back right before that election and um so you you had the sense that this huge storm had just blown through and and people were uh, reassembling, you know, the, <laughs> the wood, the timber, um, trying to rebuild. And, and it was, and Congress, you know, especially had been, had been, uh, totally thrown off course or thrown themselves off course by that. So Bush came in, you know, it's kind of surprise. It's funny in retrospect to think about how, how, um, sure-footed he was early on, um, after the Outcome of that election, yeah. Um, and he he you didn't know, take office
1: under the best of circumstances. He didn't, but yeah.
0: he but he he sure got a lot done in the first few years, and especially in the aftermath of of nine uh, eleven, and that was a you know that was in probably a high water mark for Washington in recent history. It was kind of downhill from there.
1: And um, what were the um, what were your recollections of Congress in that sort of nine eleven? post 9-11 period
0: well i mean it was a it was an entirely collaborative and kind of adult um run institution where you felt like the leaders were leading and you may not have agreed with them um but they uh they felt formidable. The institution felt formidable and like it was addressing real problems and maybe overreaching or, or, um, uh, maybe, you know, in the case of the tax bill or whatever, um, uh, doing a little a too much of for their friends. A couple of major tax cuts during your... Yeah, and uh, big energy packages, and um, the the No Child Left Behind bill passed during that period. It was... But it very... Almost all of those were collaborative efforts to some degree. Mm-hmm. And people had a, a sense of... And I, I, I suppose it was partly nine eleven, largely that in some respects, but also, uh, or in some cases. But I think that was just the well, way... the institution right was-, was still rolling along at that
1: my recollection was that bush was um you know he 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 was transformed by the 911 mm-hmm. experience and that probably turbocharged his ability to get some stuff done there so you were there uh through that period and into the first two years uh of obama and i want to talk to you about the 2008 campaign where we met uh because you you did some great reporting on that campaign not to mention Holding the hand of a very nervous, nervous strategist every once in a while, <laughs> uh, I'm not going to name that person. Mm-mm. But um, uh, where did obviously the beginning of the Bush administration was much different than the 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 right. f- the uh, end of the Bush administration, and the thing kind of got off the rails. Was it the war? Yeah, definitely. was it
0: solely the war? I think it was yeah I think it was the war, and the war was a um I, I mean that was really the beginning of this sort of phase that we're in where people uh, uh lost faith in these institutions in a way that um has basically affected their ability to function and and the i think the uh I mean, I know as a reporter covering the war debate and seeing the, um, being just disappointed in the way that people dealt with that, with, dealt with those votes and, and try to rationalize what they were doing and the, uh, the political expediency and so much of it that, that came to obscure the actual merits of the, of the debate itself. So you had, you know the left got really wound up um, about the the surge, and you know that once the war was being prosecuted, it became it was surprising to see how partisan it remained, even on a on a um, uh, even on the actual prosecuting of it, as opposed to trying to unpack why it had happened and holding people accountable. Do you accountable think part for of that. it
1: was that there were people? Uh particularly Democrats who cast votes for the war, who then needed to, um, who, who felt uh, that they had been deceived, no weapons of mass destruction, it didn't go the way they were told, uh, and now they were on the hook uh, for for the war, uh, which gave them an impetus to be even tougher mm-hmm. on the administration for having gone along.
0: Well, I think that it'd be, I, you know, I think there were a couple of things. There was the post 9-11 fog that the country was still in and that, you know, just as the country was in it, so were our leaders. And perhaps people were not thinking clearly or, or trusting their instincts or listening to their, um, uh, you know, not making calculations in a normal context. And And I think that just spiraled and people began to see political opportunity and taking certain positions. And then it became, um, you know, it became, even from a reporter's perspective, you couldn't, it was hard to even cover it objectively. I remember, you know, you'd write stories and the lead quote would be a Republican and then you'd get some, you know, amazing volume of, that's when I first started seeing like really partisan hate mail coming in. And uh, it just became... That that more and more obscured the um, Meritful, the actual yeah. the merits of the the merits of the case, but also the public debate. And mm-hmm. you know, I remember the 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 biggest uh, kind of moment of truth for me was early in the two thousand six midterm election cycle. And I always preferred midterm cycles to general elections because they were always a f- you know foreboding of of what was to come. You could see it coming. If you really got out get there, out and you'd
1: travel around and cover these congressional races,
0: yeah, I loved that because it was that was where you were really. Um, I mean, you were the only tractor in the field, right? So it was, and I would go to these small towns and and these you know military parades, um, and you go to these to small towns
1: where saying stuff like you're the only tractor in the field has real meaning to people. Yeah,
0: exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, some were manufacturing towns, so the uh but but people who were you know from military families who were at Republican events, who were Republican voters or independent voters, people who were not traditional us versus them partisans who were having really deep reservations about the war couldn't couldn't quite articulate it, and you began to see the divide between the political rhetoric in Washington versus the this kind of human struggle that that individuals uh people who maybe had a personal stake in the war were experiencing in their own lives and that's when that's what i mean where you started to see this disconnect between the political rhetoric and the actual public debate or the public conversation that was taking place in reality and um and ultimately, how poorly served people were by the political debate. And, um, and they expressed themselves in that 2006 election. That 2006 election was a big old... Huge watershed.
1: Yeah, because uh, Bush and the Republicans took a beating in that election, and it really set the the stage for what was to come in, in 2008. Um, among the people that you've covered in Congress, who are the people who impressed you the most? If you want to say who impressed you the least, you can do that as well. But who are the people who impressed you the most?
0: Yeah, I thought the most effective – I thought Trent Lott and Don Nichols were really effective Senate leaders. Mm -hmm. Um, Don
1: Nichols from Oklahoma, Trent Lott from Mississippi. Real
0: nuts and bolts guys Mm -hmm. who uh, were completely transparent, accessible, um, held daily press briefings and um but more than that just had had uh, they seemed they used power completely, you know to actually get things done, not just to to hold leverage over people or or um or suppress things they could made, they they fun- may could happen. they
1: uh functioned in this environment today
0: well, sure they could, but yeah. that's not what the i mean you would think you would think that would be coming back to into bloom now but it's but it's not Mm -hmm. since the obama shadow has lifted um but these were people who were you know they were very i was when i was a uh student reporter at northwestern i doing the washington program uh for a quarter i worked for the biloxi sun herald right after trent Lott went to the senate and he called me every day just reached out you know, you need anything for your story? What are you writing about today? Can I help you with anything? That's pretty smart. <laughs> yeah, but he, you know, I was like this this you know kid from his hometown paper, but I was the most important person um, as far as he was concerned. Now he'd become a
1: blogger somewhere, right?
0: Or or yeah, or some you know in house Washington mm-hmm. digital product that you know only staffers read, or mm-hmm. you know it was like for all for uh, who who else? Who
1: else? Uh, for, you know, did strike, struck you as effective, impressive?
0: Uh, Tom Daschle and Harry Reid were very effective. Um, the, uh, you know, Bill Thomas, the ways and means chairman in the house, Republican for years was one of the, he, um, was a real visionary on healthcare reform and was, a. I remember talking to him about that heritage plan in mm-hmm. his office. Um, which, uh, a Long, long time ago,
1: <laughs> healthcare exchanges.
0: Yes. Yeah, and the need to get away from employee-based coverage and the need for universal coverage. I mean, he had a he, he like a lot of these guys in those days. They were they were pragmatic. They were they were looking out for their interests, but they were they were trying to they were also trying to move the system um, forward.
1: So in two thousand and eight, I guess is when you joined the cam- up with the campaign. Was mm-hmm. it in two thousand eight? Yeah, I remember we were in, I think in Iowa or somewhere in and- – we pulled up, and there was Dan Baltz standing roadside with you, someone I had never met, and you guys came on the bus and interviewed uh, Obama, and Dan said she'll be hanging around with you guys for a while, and the rest is history. But mm-hmm. um, talk about that campaign. You're a pretty – you're, in a sense, a traditional reporter type in that. Um, you don't start off – sort of starry-eyed and starstruck and all of that stuff. I mean, you're, you're a pretty scrutinizing person. Um, so you didn't, I know you didn't come to this campaign. Uh, you may have come with some skepticism about Obama. A lot of Washington was skeptical about him. But what was your experience in that campaign? What did you see in the country that he was touching?
0: I felt very strongly from the start that he was, you know, probably going to be the nominee and had a chance to go all the way because I had experienced this 2006 cycle firsthand, and I saw uh, that the country was just unusually seemed, felt like unusually receptive to something new and different, and generationally different too, and. Obviously he was on the right side of the war debate, um, which I probably valued maybe a little bit more than others covering the campaign because I had covered the debate covered the right and covered the uh, sort of plotted the the national psyche on this issue maybe more closely um, so I guess I you know, I wasn't. Um, I, I wasn't predisposed to that kind of reporting. I don't like. I don't like, um, like pack journalism, and I never wanted to cover the White House or be part of a bubble.
1: Given your experiences in Richmond, um, how much uh, did it mean to you, and how much of, int- of an interest was it to you to see how this guy, this y- young African American candidate, was going to navigate? the complicated forces of race in the country
0: yeah it interested me a lot and i mean i did have a personal i i, I had a personal connection with him that i had never had with a politician before because i recognized so many elements of you know my own experiences and he obviously he's not a catholic He kind of felt like one though um <laughs> Yeah. And, um, yeah, to work for Catholic exactly, organizations. That exactly. was his formative
1: and, experience when he was a community organizer.
0: And saw a lot of problems sort of through that lens. Um, I, uh, so, I mean, was I rooting for it to happen? Yeah, probably, personally. But I also, you know, I was skeptical of, of his ability to sustain that over a long period of time to the extent that it's hard for anybody with very little experience to do that. But he kept crossing these thresholds as you, as you know. Um, Were there
1: times when you thought he wouldn't cross the threshold? I mean, we, there were, there were those times like obviously the Reverend Wright speech Mm -hmm. and, uh, uh in philadelphia when he had to deal with the issue of race head-on and so on were there times the loss in new hampshire were there times when you said you know what maybe this isn't going to happen
0: well i suppose the biggest the loss in new hampshire was uh, disconcerting from a reporter's perspective because um it was so unexpected and we'd had so little time on the ground there that it was, uh, we didn't really know any better. So, so you didn't see it coming? Didn't see it coming and was well, trying for the candidate. Yes. I didn't see it coming. I, I remember either, that so. night well. Yeah. Yes. And the editor screaming in our ears um, Why is this happening? Uh, the, but. It made you think that her – you know, she pivoted, obviously, during those few days and had that – She being the, Hillary Clinton. Yes, exactly, Hillary Clinton, and they had the incident in the diner. And, mm-hmm. and that was – you We're weren't sure whether that was the beginning of something, like a whole new phase mm-hmm. that was going to um, be tough to – like, and he only had one act and she had another one. Mm-hmm. So – but that didn't last very long. Then in South Carolina, that, you know, it all reverted back to, to – the magical pre- carpet. Magical run. carpet, right? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. We're
1: going to take another short break, and we'll be right back with Shayla Murray. The first two years of the Obama administration, you obviously entered office in the middle of the, t- the teeth of this um, economic uh, crisis and, and two wars. But he also had a very productive couple mm-hmm. of uh, years. Um, uh, but the Republican strategy was pretty well pronounced. I want to ask you about Mitch McConnell um, and the role that he played in terms of creating the environment that ultimately may have allowed Donald Trump uh, to win as, as sort of the, the point of the, of the Republican resistance to Obama, even when he was enormously popular. Um, t- talk about McConnell as a political character
0: he He's obviously recognized as this um, formidable tactician and but I also think he he saw he's from the south, you know he he has seen a lot of this firsthand uh, uh, as a canny politician himself that the country you know it wasn't just that the country elected. Uh, the first black president it pivoted during that election and if you're a a republican looking at your survival chances uh, that is a gigantic threat and the country is headed like has turned basically not on a dime but feels like on a dime in a completely different direction and how do you arrest that that um progress Mm -hmm. or change uh and he i think uh did what he had felt like he had to do to uh, arrest that change in the uh, he's pretty blunt about it was pretty blunt about it yeah um it was i it was such a um it was so brazen that you had to admire it but it was so damaging that you ultimately had to condemn it because um i mean we it, it unfolded to the point where we got to last year with the Merrick Garland nomination, which I thought was probably the most insidious thing I've ever seen in politics. And, um, you know, the ultimate act of nihilism and, you know, a world that doesn't need any more of it right now. So is he...
1: Uh, See, I think on your point, I think the, um, the you know, you you have to give him credit for and, and responsibility for The insight that Obama won with this promise of getting the country past this withering partisanship and getting people to work together. And by refusing to work with him, by holding back Republican votes, he denied Obama the victory of having brought the country together. He also forced him to work almost entirely on a partisan basis, which deflated this notion of Obama as a sort of, what you know, what was as a post-partisan politician or whatever people wanted to say about him. It was, uh, it was, uh, you know, shrewd.
0: It's shrewd, 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 but ultimately, but but ultimately self emoliating, right? Because uh, in the course of throwing the president off course and denying him the, you know, great uniter mantle of Reagan, which um, is what they were all ultimately worried about, that he would become this, you know, pivotal political figure like Reagan was. Um, it was the uh they completely uh, failed to address any any of the problems that their own voters were concerned about they lost they totally lost the bead on on the country and and collectively let people down to a point where they have turned to a you know utter stranger who is republican by nothing other
1: than by the by the parochial measures of the congress mm-hmm. mcconnell's the majority leader now he was uh, looking at a right. extraordinary democratic majority then he you know the house is in republican hands uh as are a thousand more legislative seats in the country and many more governorships right and that's probably how he measures success right
0: it's how he measures success, but the point i'm making is that it's not success it's not he's not actually doing anything with all that power he's amassed all this power he's mm-hmm. consolidated Republican support around an electoral strategy that is producing nothing of value for the country and and ultimately um, the cost of that is this incredible uh, you know devolution of 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 faith and trust in and trust world. in institutions, which I think is a you know catastrophic turn of events for the country, a country that's built on institutions whose institutions are supposed to be bigger and stronger than the people in them
1: you saw this happening is that what prompted you to leave journalism and join the administration? you went to work for Vice President Biden two years in
0: I did I think it was it was a combination of my Journalism experience sort of running its course. I didn't want to be the the Twitter journalist. The uh, you know, I just wasn't drawn to that kind of branding. Um,
1: or Helen Thomas, right? <laughs> the oldest, the oldest yeah. reporter right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: um, And uh, you know, I was I was really intrigued by the idea of seeing everything I was covering in real time mm-hmm. and and um, understanding it. At a higher level, a deeper level, and I also had a great amount of respect and affection for the vice president. Did you know him in the Senate a, a very well? And mm-hmm. and um and I yeah you know, I thought good
1: copy, huh?
0: Good copy, but also a you know a political savant. He's just a, a really fascinating. Mm-hmm. He sees things uh, that that uh, not everybody sees. So I thought I could learn a lot from. You shared him. the Catholic thing as well. We shared the Catholic thing. Yes. And um, uh, and the Irish thing. Mm-hmm. So uh, uh,
1: you, then you made a transition uh, from uh, the VP's staff to the president's staff, um, and you came there um, in the second half of the uh, administration, uh, and at a time when the president was kind of reevaluating how to communicate in the modern age and what what did you tell him about um what what a bully pulpit in the 21st century <laughs> looks like
0: <laughs> it looks like <laughs> hbo and <laughs> Buzzfeed. <laughs> yeah. Um I thought it, it, that
1: it, it isn't Teddy Roosevelt's bully pulpit.
0: Well, I mean Or John
1: Kennedy's or Ronald Reagan.
0: Yeah, the toolkit looks totally different, should look totally different. And in fact it's a great opportunity how much more uh how how much more media there is and how you know you can you can certainly uh use your time more effectively now than you could ten years ago, although you're not reaching those same gigantic audiences. Uh but the the, I mean, the most important thing he needed to do was just reconnect with people, and and uh, so that they you can- say
1: reconnect with them. Um, you know, he'd won two elections; he won right. A, but you, you, implicit in what you say is that somehow he had lost contact with
0: people. I don't think he. Well, obviously, he was um, by any. Um, Objective measure successful, <laughs> but but had you know had been uh, the actual narrative of his presidency. People had kind of lost the thread of that, and the connection that I saw that was so powerful in two thousand four and and then in um, uh, initially and when he was the, when he was the, when he, were, when he, when he, he gave the big the speech and yeah. had the big moment right, and people realized that wow, someone like that actually exists in politics, and then uh escalating very quickly to his successful 2008 campaign that was the person they had kind of lost the connection mm-hmm. with and i thought i thought it was important to reestablish that connection so that he could um bring people along through his presidency and ultimately turn over the work uh To them to carry forward, and that because that's a you know an essential part of the close of a presidency is the is the um, uh, reestablishment of what it actually represented, and then empowering people to go out and defend it or continue the work.
1: And what what are the kind of tools of reconnection or tools that you use to reconnect him with people?
0: Well, through different um, you know we used uh, we did a lot of uh, big longer term documentary projects that got him into different, um, uh, formats that lived longer than, you know, a you know, 10 minute, um, broadcast interview. We would, uh, he did a lot of like public conversations with non-journalists, which, uh, as you know, or can yield <laughs> more fulsome conversations. And, and those were, uh, um, gave him a chance to, talk for an hour or so about uh, uh, his thoughts on leadership, patriotism, things that, you know, wouldn't, aren't normal in the course of events, but that are, are, are issues and big framing um, pieces of a presidency that matter. And put him
1: on podcasts.
0: Put him on podcasts. Mark
1: marin has got a wonderful podcast. He did a great conversation with him kind of inspired me to want to do this
0: right so it's a it's um you know the whole notion of meeting people where they are and then using these different formats to to uh, come at them from a different uh from a different point of view than just the daily newspaper or the nightly news well and also to overcome
1: what was coming at him You know, i remember speaking to him at one of the Lower points after the in 2013, um, and um, and he talked a lot about uh, wanting to find alternative ways to reach people because right. he was you know to get past the sort of the the kind of hum humming of the kind of daily coverage and all of this social media that was coming at him.
0: Well, it's like having an offense, right? So you're you're going through you know even when you're in a six month cycle of just gloom and doom and you know ebola and and the border crisis and all the things that uh, uh are inevitable to to the presidency the problems that are inevitable it gives you a it gives you a path forward that you're you know you're never losing sight of even when even during these downturn periods so you're always um Doing something proactively, even when you're defending or you know trying and to catch he fi- up, he
1: finished um, with a very high approval rating. Uh, and how much of that do you think was uh, the fact that you guys did a, I think, a really incredible job of using all these platforms to communicate the story you wanted to communicate? But it's also true that uh, the focus of the sort of anti forces shifted from him to Hillary Clinton. So he was no longer Mm -hmm. under siege in the way that he had been for the first six or seven years of his administration.
0: That's true. And the contrast is, um, you know, an advantage that, so to speak, that he didn't have. Um, Although, I think that yeah, you know, I think it was really... I, I don't think you can separate the two things because I think you have to put yourself in a position to take advantage of of an opening, of an opportunity like that. And I think by uh, expanding the reach, by doubling down on some of these um, more uh, kind of longer form reconnection, you know, this exercise that we ran was was actually put people in a frame of mind that they could see him differently. Yeah, clearly yeah. what
1: was animating a lot of this had to do with him as a person, not just right. a particular exactly. policy. or an idea. But, he, yeah. and or a and myth. And yeah. that, uh, that, that got communicated, and you saw research focus groups and other research that really spoke to him, him as a family man, him as uh, his personal values and so on. Things that you can't communicate uh Without uh, some of these longer forms and we would get vehicles. i mean he
0: would get you know a lot of mail uh, after these after these you worked um, with
1: a, a, a writer on a piece about his his mail. He'd read ten letters a night right. from the moment he got to the White House every night. Uh, this was his sort of tether to the people who were out there and looking to him and they were really meaningful it wasn't just a kind of empty exercise
0: no not at all and they and you could tell when something was resonating I mean after the Mark Marin interview he got a he got a whole pile of mail about that interview where have you been all this time why aren't you doing these more often you know that's like this is what America needs to hear from you that sort of not
1: those letters weren't just from the staff right
0: no <laughs> well <laughs> and maybe Mark Marin's staff but the um But it was, it was, uh, and every time we do something like that, we get a reaction like that, you would see it in the comments section, you know, it was just this out, this, this outpouring of, of, uh, of, like, I knew you were there, um, Keep talking to me. I want to hear more from you directly. Um, uh, Tell me what you think about this. Uh, You went to a prison, and that told me, you know, uh, that made me pay attention to the— It was—I It was. mean, it it didn't all show up in the letters, but I thought that was the most— that was my most valued kind of measure of how these things were breaking through.
1: So, needless to say, the story didn't end quite as you planned. Right. Uh, Tell me about election night when the realization came that, in fact, Hillary Clinton wasn't going to be president and Donald Trump was, and what that meant for uh, some of the things that you had worked on?
0: So I was over at a friend's house who works for Nancy Pelosi, and when the Pinellas County Florida returns came in, and I saw that she was going to lose Pinellas County, and knowing who lives in Pinellas County, which is a bunch of people who used to live in in the Midwest, um, was was overcome with uh, alarm, and uh, so I excused myself. And not just and alarm, right? Well, I excused myself and went home. I turned on the TV. Uh, five minutes later, when I get to my house, and uh, and and. Sure enough, this you know these the Florida was slipping the, away. This wave of Midwest results start coming. in. Yeah, and the Virginia stuff was looking bad. And I, I for the first time in my life, was overcome with this nauseous feeling and um, physically and overcome. I was physically overcome. It was sho- it was shock really. In retrospect, um, uh, I suppose a certain amount of horror. But uh, the the thing that I couldn't get out of my head was Merrick Garland, this person we had we had fought for and believed in, and this um, uh, this ultimate um, violation that I felt like his the denial of a hearing for him represented. Anyway, that was the that crystallized it for me. The, the what was slipping away was was not just the Supreme Court seat, but everything it represented. And it was the ultimate, uh, you know, validation of this horrible strategy that I thought had done so much damage to the country over the last eight years. So, but, but I also think that he, he was the most authentic, the most, um, uh, he had the simplest message he he was in perversely the most disciplined about it. And, um, and he obviously connected with people on issues that we just didn't, you know, connect as well. On and I and that is that causes it. That doesn't cause small things like the economy. For example. Small things like the economy. Huge, sec, you know, huge segments of the population um, uh, that have been left behind, and all of this recovery that we love to talk about, and you know, the opioids crisis, which was obviously like the tail end of a thirty-year decline mm-hmm. on behalf of these communities, and. Um, uh, it was just so. If if you're not soul searching right now as a Democrat who had anything to do with this, here you know <laughs> you're not taking care of business because it's you. You have to under you have to look deep within yourself. I think, or I feel like I do, to understand. What I missed and make sure it doesn't happen again.
1: And what 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 do you see uh, for yourself in the future? I know you're doing some consulting and hmm. uh, of course spending some time as a fellow at the Institute of Politics, which uh, has been great. but what uh, for us, I should say. but what uh, where do you see you going? Where do you I'm, I'm thinking back to you the kid who was raised by the parents who mm-hmm. urged you to do things larger than yourself.
0: Yes, well, you know, you've, you resurface from an experience like this, and you—it takes a while to um, to assess. And I also—I love transitions. I like that liberation of feeling um, uh, like you're on a course. You, you get to pick your course, and that's exciting. And um, and I want it to look different. I'm not sure how different, but I think once you once you experience the satisfaction of making something big happen you're you're attracted to it and maybe it takes a different form but i'll figure it out
1: well i know you my friend i expect you'll be making big things happen somewhere (laughs) and probably for the good of some people uh, or many people so I, i appreciate you and your friendship and you being here
0: thank you david Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu.